Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Helen Scales. I'm going to kick things off this week with the wonderful, intelligent marine creatures, the octopuses, or the octopodes, if you like, another way of saying it, and a group of scientists who've been pushing high-definition TV screens up to the side of an octopus's aquarium tank and showing them images of crabs and other octopuses and revealing that these wonderful creatures undergo major mood swings, ranging from glum to excitable and a occasionally aggressive. Well, previous attempts to show moving pictures to octopuses have failed, and that's probably because the old-style cathode ray TV screens only show pictures 26 times a second, and that isn't fast enough for the sophisticated eyes of the octopuses, Um, and they probably only saw sort of incomprehensible blurs, so it really didn't make any sense to them what they were looking at. Now, Renata Pronk and colleagues from Macquarie University in Australia decided to try octopuses on the brand-new generation of liquid crystal high-definition TV screens and with a bit of trial and error they discovered that octopuses do respond to images showing at a rate of 50 frames a second. Now they were working with a species that lives in Sydney Harbour called Octopus Trichus and that's commonly called the gloomy octopus, which is <laughs> Sounds appropriate. a very appropriate name for this study. So, and so just to, to recap then, you've got an octopus sitting in a tank and an LCD screen against the side of the tank and there are various pictures being flashed at the octopus. That's right. And the question is, can they see it and do they respond to it? Well, what are they showing them? So they're showing, they started off showing them pictures of crabs and that's some of their favourite food. Um, and what happened was when they started using these high def HD TVs, um, the octopuses would leap up and try and attack these pictures, assuming therefore that they thought they were real crabs and they were worth having a go at to eat. Um, they also showed films of other octopuses and um, then mostly they would dash to the back of the tank and try and hide from them from a, from a competing octopus. Now um, this study which appears in the Journal of Experimental Biology um, in, in that the team basically repeated these tests over the course of several weeks and this is when they uncovered these mood swings of the octopuses because um, in the same day an, indiv- in an individual octopus reacted in a consistent way to the same pictures of crabs or other octopuses. But later in the same week, they actually quite often showed different behaviour. Some animals were initially quite excitable, and then on another occasion, they were quite gloomy and much less enthusiastic. So um, essentially what they're showing is that octopuses may have some kind of personality, but it isn't really consistent over time. And uh, you get one on a bad day, and you might have an extremely grumpy octopus, um, but later on, uh, in fact, you know, it might be quite quite exciting and excited and friendly. Um, and uh, now that that Pronk and the team have discovered they can use these TV screens. There's all sorts of other things they can now do. They've figured out how to play octopus movies and they're really excited about going in and and looking more at these extraordinary intelligent animals um, and finding out more about them, like how do they communicate, do they learn from each other? All sorts of possibilities are now opened up. Why do they have such a big brain? Because they they do, don't they? They can do things like figure out how to open jars and, and unscrew screw caps and things. Why are, should they, they be are, so intelligent? How does that help them in the wild? Well, it's, it's all about problem solving. They're, they're able to solve problems about the world that they live in to find themselves food. Yes, OK, they can open jars. Jars don't naturally occur in the wild, but it reflects on their ability to solve other problems that are relevant to them. And for some reason, somewhere along the evolutionary line, these mollusks um, have evolved and been able to evolve extremely large brains and it's extreme intelligence. Some, you, know, you could ask the same questions of people. Why are we intelligent or not in some cases (laughs) thank you helen now also this week scientists have discovered that gene sequences 
can affect how you perceive or experience pain. Now, the story actually goes back a few years. It's a researcher called Jeff Woods who's uh, based in Cambridge at the Cambridge Institute for Medical Research, and he published a paper when he went to Pakistan. He found a number of families, of children especially, who didn't appear to be able to experience pain at all. And they would do things like put their hands into boiling water. One of them even jumped off a roof to impress his friends. And they would sustain these terrible injuries, but at no time were they ever in pain. And Jeff Woods obviously realised this is quite important. There must be something that's being passed on in these families that gives them this ability, this disadvantage, you could say. So they studied the DNA of these people and they found a gene which is called SCN9A. And what this gene does is it codes for a sodium channel, a little pore, which is present on the nerve fibres called C-fibres that are important for sensing pain. And in these families, this gene wasn't working properly, which is why they couldn't feel any pain. But what the researchers wondered was, well, OK, if you take the gene away or stop it working, you can't feel any pain, but could there be different forms of it in the population, meaning that different people who carry a different form of it may therefore feel pain differently from each other? So they did this intriguing study where they had 578 people who had arthritis. They asked them how bad their arthritis pain was, and they then compared their reports of how bad their pain was with X-ray images of their joints so they could work out how bad the arthritis was. And then they compared those results with whether or not these people had certain sequences of this SCN9A gene. And what they found were there were two different forms of the gene. There's one called the A form, which is quite rare, and these people tended to report worse pain for having the same amount of arthritis, and another group of people reported less pain. They had what's called the G form. So that looked interesting. They then checked that result by testing people who had backache and found exactly the same result for sciatica. And then in a third test, they actually got some female volunteers and subjected them to some painful stimuli and found that people who had the A form of this gene experience more pain than people who had the G form. And so what this is suggesting is that there are people in the population who feel pain differently based on the genes they carry. And this is pain, it's not just senses. I mean, these people who, do, who can't feel pain can feel someone touching them, can they still? It's not. It's, it's a different yeah. form of, of sense, is it? It's specific and unique to these little C fibres, the very tiny fibres that specifically signal things like burning or anything that basically triggers pain sensations when you do something to the body light touch, which is tickling and just gentle stroking of the skin or ruffling someone's hair, for example, that's low threshold mechanoreceptive stimulation and that is signalled by a different class of nerve fibres, so that still is intact. So this is very interesting. It says, now you can get a handle on how the body interprets pain and maybe go ahead to test people to see what drugs would work best in them or, better still, make drugs that are specific for certain people and will therefore treat pain better in them than others because, as we're finding increasingly in medicine, genetically speaking, one size does not fit all. Absolutely. And they always say that uh, women don't feel as much pain as men. I wonder if they're going to find out that that is true. Maybe they're just better at putting up with it. My wife puts up with me. I mean, (laughs) it says a lot, doesn't it? Now, back to the animal world and eyeless scorpions that live in deep caves in Mexico that have returned to the light and regained their ability to see, showing rather amazingly that having a very specialised way of life isn't always an evolutionary blind alley. Now, Lorenzo Prendini from the American Museum of Natural History in New York leads a team who've been studying a group of closely related scorpions, many of which have lost their eyesight and become very pale and unpigmented. 
these are both adaptations to life in dark, sunless caves. Well, Prendini and the team scrutinised nearly 200 physical characteristics of these scorpions to work out how closely related individual species are. And this included mapping the arrangement of very tiny hairs on their pedipalps, otherwise known as those large pincers at the front of them. And uh, they used this data to build a family tree, and it revealed that the generalist species living closer to the surface, under stones and amongst leaf litter, actually evolved um, independently more than once from cave-dwelling ancestors. Oh, wow. So if they can see... That tells you they must have re-evolved the ability to see Absolutely. because they got it from these ones that were blind. Absolutely. And in t- up until now, it's really been widely assumed that when a species evolves specialist characteristics for a particular environment, such as blindness in caves, then they can't reverse that and that become and become less specialised again. But that's just what we've seen happening in these scorpions. And uh, scorpions have been around for a very long time, 450 million years, and today there's about 2,000 of them. But only 23 are known to live in dark um, caves, so-called troglobites. That's a great word. There's a word for you today. And uh, and the deepest ones are down to about a kilometre. Um, but now it's really shown that they've got this flexibility and, and the ones that have evolved to live in caves haven't necessarily condemned future generations to remain stuck in the dark and that losing your eyesight isn't always an evolutionary dead end. And over time, how long in evolutionary time separates the ones that live on the surface and have got their eyes back from the ones that lost their vision and, and live in these caves. So reasonably how long has it taken recently, to get that back? Reasonably recently, only one of the p- things that pinpoints what was going on is that lots of the surface dwellers, in fact, went extinct around about the same time as the dinosaurs. And this, if we remember, is in, is in Mexico, which is close to where that meteorite came down. And whether or not it had anything to do with the dinosaurs, chances are it probably wiped out these surface-dwelling uh, uh, scorpions. So since then, the ones deep down survived and have re-evolved back up to the surface in the last, say, 65 million years. Isn't the world a wonderful place? Thank you, Helen. We're also in the news this week. Uh, Researchers at University College London have developed a way to read a person's thoughts and basically see what they're seeing in their mind's eye using a brain scanner. And Dr Demis Sasabis is behind this study and he's with us now. Hello, Demis. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us, if you would, first of all, what it is you actually have discovered. Yes, what we did in this study um, was to basically get volunteers to um, view three short video clips Um, These are video clips of sort of everyday common events like um, someone posting a letter or someone throwing um, a piece of trash in a bin. And then what we did is we asked them to memorize those um, video clips um, in as much detail as possible. And then a little short while later, they were placed in the scanner and they were asked to um, freely recall um, those three memories um, in any order they wanted to and as many times as they wanted to. And then um, after the scanning, we analyzed their brain scans and um, we found we were able to tell which one of the three memories they were recalling and at which time um, at an above chance level. What was the scanner seeing? So the scanner was, um, we were focusing on this um, small region of the brain um, called the hippocampus that is, uh, that is known to be essential for, for this kind of memory. And um, what we do is we use um, quite sophisticated um, uh, machine learning algorithms to try and spot patterns in, in people's brain scans. Um, and that's what we were able to do here with just the activity um, patterns in, in this region called the hippocampus. Um, and we were able to tell from that which memory um, someone was recalling. How is the brain playing out that memory through that brain structure in a way that you're able to eavesdrop on? 
So what we think is going on is that um, when they first see these videos in the in the training session, um, the hippocampus is responsible for laying down a memory trace, if you like, or a, a copy of um, of that memory. So that's what allows you to remember something um, in the future is that you re basically reactivate that memory trace. Um, so what we've done here is sort of try and investigate um, that memory trace directly and, and come up with a technique that allows us to look at that memory trace directly in vivo, you know, in a functioning uh, 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 human brain. And how does this inform our understanding of how that part of the brain actually works and presumably also how we then extend that into what happens when it goes wrong with ageing and dementia and things? Yeah, so what we're really interested in, and it's, this, is, this, this study is part of a programme of studies that are investigating the fundamental structure of memory. What we'd like to know is things like what aspects of an experience are preferentially recorded by the brain. So obviously these are important questions because if we can understand um, uh, how the brain does that, then maybe and we can help form therapies for, for, say, people who have disorders such as Alzheimer's or dementia, where we can try and enhance um, their memory for the things that they need to remember over and above um, other stuff that's not so essential to them. And could you extrapolate the study to, to look into other modalities, other aspects of memory? You just asked people to, to watch three short films, but could you make it much more detailed? How, how far do you think you could take this? Yeah, so that's what we're um, uh, planning to do next and in the process of doing at the moment is extending it further into now looking at um, whether, for example, it's the content of a memory or the context, so i.e. what happened or where it happened that actually best defines the memory. And that's the start of actually breaking down memories into their components. So we can actually eventually start looking at which features or which aspects of an experience um, that the brain is coding for. But of course, it is a little bit artificial because your system had to learn from these people first in order to know what it was looking for and then record back when they did their free imagination and match the two things together. It's a, it's a bit further down the line before presumably you'll be able to put someone in a scanner and then work out what they're thinking about without having pre-learned. Yes, that's right. We're, we're a long, long way away from, from creating some kind of general purpose, um, I don't know, mind reading machine or something. You know, in that, uh, as you say, what, what we did here is that these are three predefined um, memories that we know, um, you know, that the, the, the volunteer is going to choose between. And also, even then, we're not 100% accurate. So very much at the moment, it's still fundamental research rather than any kind of application such as, such as that. So the HMRC, the Inland Revenue, are going to have to wait a little while before they can tell whether people are being absolutely honest with their tax returns in future. That's right, that's right. Demis, thank you very much. Thank you. That's Dr Damis Sasabis. He's at University College London. If you'd like to read a bit more about the paper he was discussing that he and his colleagues have published, it's uh, in the journal Current Biology this week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.